You are now listening to the August 26th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the Screwtape Letters, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with the Screwtape Letters. everyone, this is Terry, the host of our program, The Screwtape Letters. We have been meditating on spiritual battles by reading through the book, The Screwtape Letters. This book was written by C.S. Lewis, known as one of the greatest apologists of the 20th century. The book is organized in the form of letters from a seasoned devil named Screwtape to an experienced devil named Wormwood who happens to be his nephew. Through the letter he writes, Screwtape is teaching Wormwood various tactics to catch their human prey. The speaker in the book, Screwtape, refers to humans as patients and calls Christ their enemy. Through this broadcast, we are reminded that we are currently engaged in spiritual warfare and devils are on the prowl, constantly devising tactics to ensnare us and torment us. In the previous letter, Screwtape taught his nephew Wormwood some cunning tricks to lure patients to deviate from God's will and lead them astray. What devious tactics will be revealed in today's letter? Screwtape begins by expressing his delight in the fact that the patient, a believer, has formed a relationship with certain people he approves. In other words, Screwtape is happy about a new relationship the patient, a believer, is building. We should, thus, Think about why that would be so and what is at stake by associating with some people that the devil finds pleasing and is delighted with. If the devil finds this new relationship pleasing, we as Christians should clearly understand the reasons behind it. Needless to say, these newly acquainted individuals will have a negative influence on the believer's faith. This negative influence likely means moving away from faith, from truth, and ultimately from God. So, let us dig in and find out what would cause the devil to be pleased that the believer is building a relationship with these individuals. According to the book, the people the patient is befriending are a middle-aged couple who are wealthy, intelligent, seemingly intellectual, and suspicious of everything in the world. They are also described as pacifists, albeit not the active kind. Of course, not all wealthy, intelligent, middle-aged pacifist couples would be the type that the devils would rejoice over. What C.S. Lewis is trying to express is that these people are satisfied with their affluent living conditions while they credit themselves for having achieved such lifestyle. They have not faced significant difficulties living in the world and take pride in their success in life. They consider themselves better than other people. Consequently, they fail to recognize their need for God's help. They become pacifists because they don't want their comfortable lives to be disturbed. In other words, they are not seeking peace for humanity, but rather their desire is to maintain their current lifestyle. Incidentally, when C.S. Lewis wrote this book, communism was spreading worldwide. Communism advocated equality in work and equity in distributing wealth. That was a threatening ideology for the wealthy, intelligent, and seemingly intellectual individuals. This is why this couple supported pacifism. When the patient becomes close to such people, the patient might be drawn to their lifestyle, 
even without realizing it, and would likely develop a desire to emulate such a life. That is why the devil is pleased when the patient begins to associate with these individuals. The devil lays out what happens when the patient encounters this kind of people. The patient may quickly realize that these things are in direct opposition to their faith, but if the patient does not acknowledge it because he is drawn to their lifestyle, all is well for the devil's tactics. What does this mean? When believers meet and begin to be influenced by this kind of people, they may see that their Christian values are being compromised. However, even though they know that these people have different values from the Bible and may be harmful to them, they begin to tolerate that in order to continue experiencing the pleasure and satisfaction that come from their interactions. This condition sets up an excellent context for the devil to move in and weaken the faith of the believer. In this mission, Screwtape emphasizes that in this situation, the most important thing is to delay the realization that the enjoyment derived from the association with these newly acquired friends is a temptation. In this episode, Screwtape claims that they are rescuing patients from moderation, chastity, and a wholesome spiritual life, which he calls Puritanism. From the devil's perspective, rescuing patients mean that the believers abandon their faith and return to the world. What does the term Puritanism mean, and why is it used in this context? Does it mean that it makes people abandon their faith? In fact, for us living in the present, it may not be a relevant term, but during the time when C.S. Lewis wrote this text, it was a popular concept. At the time, the term Puritanism took on a negative meaning among the general public as being overly religious. If we were to rephrase it in today's term, it would probably mean something like, don't be stuck in your Christian ways, don't be so inflexible. As a matter of fact, around the time, Britain had embraced the puritanical principles and experienced a great revival. However, over time, even in a country where faith was strong, people's faith became weakened. At the time C.S. Lewis wrote this book, many citizens of Britain began to see those who lived with faith as being overly constrained by their religion and started using terms like religious, legalistic, and puritan in a negative context. The believers whose faith was not firmly established felt ashamed when secular people pressed them as immature individuals who were still trapped in a mythical ideas in a modern age followed by the Industrial Revolution. Even today, these attacks from the devil continue to happen. For example, when we encounter someone who is wealthier and smarter, drives a fancy car, and lives in a big house, we may find it difficult to talk about Jesus with them. If they were to say something like, Surely, you don't truly believe in God, do you? Do you still believe that God created humans? Do you believe in unscientific fairy tales and myths? In other words, this person is implying, It's surprising you would buy into religious brainwashing. That's why your life still seems difficult, isn't it? Those whose faith is not firmly established might feel that their own appearance is inferior to that of the other person. If our faith is not firmly established, when we interact with such people, we might start to think, why do I have to live like this? These people live successful lives without believing in God. What about me? Does God really exist? Doubts such as these may gradually arise, 
and if we continue to associate with such people, it would eventually lead to losing trust in God, and we might gradually depart from our faith, drawn to their way of life, just like Demas who loved the world and returned to it. Apostle Paul was concerned that the faith of the Corinthian believers would weaken, and in 2 Corinthians 11.3, he says, Be careful not to let your hearts be deceived and turn away from the truth and purity that comes from Christ. There is a fear that corruption may enter your hearts, just as the serpent deceived Eve by its cunning. What about you? Have you recently made new acquaintances? Are there any new groups or gatherings you have joined? Who are these people? Could it be that they have built their lives on the premise of vanity, self-satisfaction, and arrogance? Is there a hidden influence of the serpent's deception within these encounters? In your interactions, who is influencing whom? Are you sharing the hope of salvation and eternal home in heaven with them, or are they leading you to the pleasures of the world? If, after your interactions with them, you find no joy in your heart and instead feel that your life seems burdensome and lacking, and you come to think of your God as dissatisfying, then you must cut off those connections. However, if after having those interactions, you are able to witness to them, share the gospel, see their souls awaken, and feel a heart of gratitude toward God, and if it strengthens your trust in God, then you should continue to foster those connections. These are the words from Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20-27 in the New Living Translation. My child, pay attention to what I say. Listen carefully to my words. Don't lose sight of them. Let them penetrate deep into your heart, for they bring life to those who find them and healing to their whole body. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Avoid all perverse talk. Stay away from corrupt speech. Look straight ahead and fix your eyes on what lies before you. Mark out a straight path for your feet. Stay on the safe path. Don't get sidetracked. Keep your feet from following evil. With that, we'll conclude today's program. Let us meet again next time. Thank you. I believe in the sun. I believe in the risen one I believe I overcome By the power of His blood Amen
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Cavalry Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is serving in humility. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. So I want us to look at Acts chapter 20. Let's start with verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from this first day that I set foot in Asia. Now from verses 19 on to um, probably 27, Paul is summarizing his ministry. It's like his ministry distilled to four important things. So let's read. I want to read the whole passage, and then we'll go back. We'll talk about it. Verse 19. The whole time for first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and privately from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. What he experienced... And the way he lived his life is an example for all of us. First of all, I see that Paul served the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And so that is the way we live the Christian life, is through the power of the Holy Spirit. I can't do this on my own. And so Paul has this walk with the Lord in the Holy Spirit that is empowering the things that we're going to be talking about. First of all, Paul served the Lord with humility. He says in verse 19, Serving the Lord with all humility. You know, God doesn't share his glory with anybody, not even a piece of it, not in a particle of it. Here's a definition of humility. 
Humility is having a right understanding of who God is and a good understanding of who you are not. When we understand that, humility happens, right? I understand who God is, how great he is, how holy it is, he is, and no one is like him, and then I understand me. But God is holy, we are not. This puts things into perspective. He said, I serve the Lord with all humility and with tears. The New Living Translation says, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. Humility is often forged in the fires of failure and defeat and affliction. And so God often uses our failures, our defeats, our trials to bring us to the point that we are completely dependent upon him and we realize that there is no way that I can do this on my own. Someone has made a list of some of the characteristics of a humble person. You don't think you're better than everyone else. You know your own weaknesses. You do not boast about your strengths. You acknowledge that you can always improve and grow. It's a humble person. You admit when you don't know something. Humble people do that. Proud people don't. You're not a sore loser but you congratulate someone for beating you. No, I don't know. Maybe that shouldn't be on the list. <laughs> Leslie is so good at games. I won't play them anymore. She always wins. Even Bible games, you know, Bible knowledge games, don't even compete. Don't even think. I mean, she knows Noah's wife's name, Joan of Arc. I mean, she just knows all of this stuff. <clears throat> you don't gloat about your own successes. Humble people don't think they're above other people just because they're more successful than other people. You always search for people who can challenge you and teach you more. Humble people graciously thank people when they are helped by them, and you generously listen to other people and their opinions. We're humble when we listen to people we disagree with and don't shut them down. It's okay to listen. That's not going to convert you to a philosophy or something that you don't agree. But sometimes if you just listen, that makes a big impression. It gives you an opening to be able to state now your side of the story or your truth. Paul served the Lord with all humility. He served like Jesus. Let's look at John. You know, all the Gospels except John talk about the, the Last Supper. John doesn't talk about the Last Supper. What John talks about, I mean, doesn't talk about Jesus breaking the bread and giving uh, the elements, the, the wine, and saying, this is my body and this is my blood. Instead, John highlights something that the other Gospels don't. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Amen? Jesus loves you, and he will always love you to the what? The end. But during the supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. I want to point out something. Jesus knew who he was and where he was going. And knowing that, he was able to serve people. I mean, Jesus is perfect. Maybe there's a little bit of a difference there, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this truth. When we know who we are and we know where we're going, we can serve people with humility. Amen? I know who I am. I'm a child of God. Nobody can take that away from me. Nobody can tell me anything different. And I'm being kept by Jesus and I know where I'm going. And so I can serve other people. It's not about something being beneath me. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This was servants' work, I'm sure you've heard. This should have been done as the disciples came into the house, the very first thing. There should have been a servant there. There was water to wash feet. This is a common practice because you're wearing sandals. The feet are dirty. There's dust, all sorts of stuff. And so he came into the house to clean your feet and to refresh you. In all of the arrangements Jesus made for the Passover meal, he did not arrange for a servant to do that because he wants to teach his disciples a very important lesson. So he's washing their feet, and he comes to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? In other words, he's cluing in, I should be doing this. And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you don't understand now, but afterwards you will understand. So he came to Simon. Simon says you know, to him, verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. And you can tell him just pulling his feet away. Can't you see that? You'll never wash my feet. And Jesus says, he says to him, if I do not wash your feet, you have no part, no share with me. Our fellowship has to be based on clean feet, and I'm the only one that can wash that away. And if you don't let me wash your feet, our fellowship together is broken. Not he doesn't lose his salvation, but there's that union, that fellowship with Jesus. So then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean. And now you're clean. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place at the head of the table, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord And you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. This is a model I'm giving you for serving like I serve, for being a minister like I'm a minister. You've got to be able to serve people like humbly like I have. If then, verse 14 Your Lord and teachers have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Amen?
So I see, okay, Jesus, you are my example in service. Going back to Acts chapter 20, I want to point out another thing. Paul says, I've served the Lord with all humility and what? Tears. When you love people, you rejoice when people rejoice. And God, it gives you a heart to weep with those who weep. Paul served the Lord secondly, not just through humility, but also he served the Lord through trials. How many plots have we read already in the book of Acts that, that were tried to be hatched on Paul? Some of them uh, actually reached Paul. I'm thinking of Lystra right now. Remember in Lystra when, when they um, wanted him to be um, one of the, the gods, remember? And when he made sure that they understood he wasn't, then they stoned him and they took him outside of the city and left him for dead. There have been so many trials this man has gone through. So let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 21 through 28. Now Paul is having to establish his credibility as being an apostle sent from Jesus Christ. There were literally people, there were people, some of them were those Judaizers who came along and they said, Paul is not a true apostle. We are the true apostles. And so Paul, he says, I don't want to boast about this, but I am an apostle called by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, look at the things I've been through for Jesus. So verse, that's where we are in verse 21. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm, I'm speaking as a fool, but I dare to boast of that. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. <laughs> I know I'm talking like a madman but with far greater labors. And he says, they're, they're servants when it's easy. No, he says, look, I'll tell you what a real servant of God looks like, and let's look, let's look. He says, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Listen, verse 24, 25, 26, okay? Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from all the other things, there is the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. Who's a real apostle? This man. Amen? This man. And so he said, I have served the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. And I'm serving the Lord through the trials. Saints, we serve the Lord through the trials. Life is tough. That's not the time to stop serving the Lord. You march on. Satan often puts obstacles in front of you because he does want to hinder your walk. 
He doesn't want you. He knows that maybe if you step on through, that you're going to come out in a place where God is going to bless you, God's going to use you, somebody's life is going to be changed, but the trial is in your way. Don't let it stop you. Do not let it stop you. Hudson Taylor, great missionary, said, it doesn't matter how great the pressure is. What really matters is where the pressure lies. Listen, whether it comes between you and God or whether it presses you nearer to his heart, is that trial going to push you away from God or is it going to press you in closer to God? In the fourth century, this is a real true story. There was an extremely old Christian who had spent years in a dark, dismal dungeon for his faith in Christ because the empire up until that point had, had been pagan. To make matters even worse, he had spent those gloomy, dark days in the cell with a, a heavy ball chained to his ankle. So he couldn't move, and it took all this effort, and he was skin and bones. But when the Emperor Constantine converted and the empire became Christian, it was legalized over, there were thousands of people who, uh, Christians who were released from their prisons, including this old man. And this is what happened. Constantine wanted to repay the man for his years of misery. So he ordered that the ball and chain be removed and weighed. And then he said, whatever the weight of that ball and chain, I want you to give him that amount of gold. Constantine figured the greater the weight of his chains, the greater would be his reward when he would be released. You know, there was to be a direct connection between the suffering and the glory. And brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that there is a direct connection between your suffering and the glory that is to come. Blessed is he who endures under trial. The Lord says, because you will receive the crown of life. The crown of life is the same crown that the Lord gives those who die for him. We call it the martyr's crown. The same crown is given those who live through trial. And I've thought about that often. I think the reason why is Jesus knows sometimes it's harder to live for him in a difficult trial than it is to die for him. Because you're, you're going through a long, long, slow death that might be most of your life. And so the Lord says, you know, I just want you to hear, those of you who are suffering, you're sick, you're in pain, you know, if you walk with Jesus and you give that over to him and you say, Lord, I'm going to serve you anyway, reward is just ticking up for you. Well, I don't care about reward. Well, that's because you're kind of dumb. Okay, you just need to <laughs> learn more. I hear that all the time. Well, I don't, I'm not, I don't want a reward. I'm, yes, you do. Why? Jesus talks about reward all the time, right? So it means something in heaven. Well, I, don't be ignorant. When you get into heaven, you're not going to say, oh, I didn't want any of these. You're going to say, wow, thank you, Lord, for blessing me. Crowns are coming. In Romans 8, verse 18, happens to be the same time that Paul is in Acts 20, right in there. Paul wrote Romans during this time. 
Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He says, I don't consider the sufferings of this present time. The word consider in Greek means to compute or to calculate. He says, calculate what the glory is going to be. Going back now to our chapter 20, verse 20. I did not shrink or avoid from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Testifying, he says, of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus. Then he says in verse 27, I did not shrink or avoid from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now we've heard a lot how important expository teaching is, right? We go verse by verse through the scripture because you're going, as you go through the books of the Bible, you're getting the whole counsel of God. There are things that people might not talk about that they do when they come to a passage of the scripture. The whole counsel of God is what Paul gave to the people. And when we share with people, it's the whole counsel of God that we share with them. Look at 2 Timothy. We're going to the right again. Chapter 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So all the scripture, he says, is inspired by God. That's a whole nother topic. But every word of this book comes from God. Every single word is inspired by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's the idea right there, actually, of a ship all rigged out, ready to go to sail. Everything you need to sail on, we find in the Word of God. Everything you need to equip you from life, we find in the Word of God. Now, what I'd like us to do uh, in a moment is we're going to read on chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. The importance of being a person of the Scripture as a pastor, a leader, any way that you, anywhere when you're interacting with believers or unbelievers, the importance of that is given now in chapter 4, verse 1. Now, probably this is a more solemn charge that you will find in the Bible. You listen to this in verse 1. I charge you, he's talking to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. That's pretty big, isn't it? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. That's what we ought to hear from the pulpit. And that's what we want to share with people. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. I think we're almost in the out of season time, don't you? Rebuke, uh, reprove, rebuke, and exhort using the word with complete patience and teaching. Why is this so important, gang? Verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. 
For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, talking to Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I'm already, Paul says, He's finishing that ministry that we read about next. He says, I just want to finish my ministry. So he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the what, gang? Crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. You love and look forward to the the return of Jesus Christ? A crown of righteousness. A crown of righteousness. I would love to say, and by God's grace, I want to say, at the end of my life, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. How about you? That's what I want to say. Those would be great to be your last words, wouldn't they? Those very last words. I want God working in my life, then I have to, I have to have an intake of the word of God. Why doesn't God speak to me? He does speak to you. He speaks through his word. Well, I'm not hearing him. Well, it takes more than, you know, a five-minute YouTube thing to grow in the Lord. You know, I've been told you can't go more than 15 minutes on anything because people don't have an attention. Well, you want a 15-minute walk with the Lord? You think that's going to get through you through the troubles that you're in or might come upon you or prep you for what might be coming in our world? 15 minutes? You've got to be in the Word of God yourself. This is great, and we need to come together, right? The Bible says for us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. But... We've got to be in the Word ourselves, reading, listening to the Word of God. I read, I don't read, uh, right now I'm not reading to cover a lot of ground, which I kind of look as, not in a bad way, but kind of shallow reading. I'm just, I want to read through a book. I want to get through, you know, a portion of the New Testament. Uh, I can do that pretty fast. But I'm reading right now to kind of soak in the Word. So I'll read and I'll stop when something speaks to me because I've already prayed, Holy Spirit, please direct me. Please speak to me. Give me something for today, either for myself or somebody else. And so when I come to a place that I look at it kind of like I've got Velcro on me and the Word of God has Velcro on it, and when I come to that place and I stick, that's where I stop. And I pray over it. I ask the Lord about it, and it's sweet. You've heard from God, and that builds you up. The word of God does the work of God in your life. When Paul was talking to the Thessalonian Christians, he said that the word of God was at work in their lives. It was in uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He says, the word of God is at work in our lives. The word work is energia. The Word of God literally is working in your life. Its energy is in your life. It's effective. I'm 
I'm sold on this. I believe that this is living and active, that it is powerful. I believe the word of God speaks to me. I believe that whenever God, as the prophet said in the Old Testament, when God sends out his word, he says, it always succeeds and accomplishes what he wants it to do. Heaven and earth will pass away, but this book endures. Amen? Amen. I don't worship the book, but I know the God who is behind it and the God who said, these are the words and all the words you need to know about me until Jesus returns. And just finally, one last thing, going back to Acts chapter 20. Paul's ministry was a testimony of God's grace. His ministry was a testimony of God's grace. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 24. For I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course. Remember he said later, I have finished my course. And the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is the ministry, guys? What is it? To testify to what? gospel of the grace of God. Look at verse 32. He's saying farewell to these elders of the wonderful church. Jesus loves the church in Ephesus. And this is what he says. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his what? Grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who sanctified. Grace is our message, okay? A church that knows and understands and preaches the grace of God will be a church where the people have a security in Christ. And when you have security, you bloom and you blossom. He says, the word of his grace will build you up in verse 32 and give you that great inheritance among everybody who has been called, sanctified to be a child of God. It's grace. It's the word of God's grace. Yes, there is instruction. Yes, there is correction. Yes, there is rebuke. But remember, the Holy Spirit does not use a two-by-four. Satan shouts, the Holy Spirit whispers.
The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Who comforts us in our afflictions that we would be able to comfort others. And he does allow afflictions, he does allow trouble, he allows situations. But he's a good God. He's working all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his glory. And as we come to our study in Second Thessalonians again, we see the Thessalonians are going through deep persecution. And the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit in what we'll see today, brings forth great encouragement for them, and I also believe great encouragement for us. Would you turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 
chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 and 12. Now, as we come to 2 Thessalonians again, you might remember the context of 1 Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul is writing a church that is less than a year old in the faith. And we know when we looked at 1 Thessalonians that in Acts 17, we have the account of the conversion of these Thessalonians, the birth of the church at Thessalonica. And we know that Paul stayed there three weeks and was driven out of town. They were so enraged about his teaching concerning Jesus, they created a riot and he fled to Berea and then Corinth. Now in 1 Thessalonians, we have the account of their conversion, where after hearing the gospel, they powerfully responded by the Spirit's work in their hearts. They turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. And we saw that not only did they receive the word, but they accepted it as the word of God, not as the word of men, but the word of God, which performs its work in those who believe. And then after sending Timothy to find out how they were doing, spiritually speaking, check into their faith, Paul gets the report, and his response is that first letter of Thessalonians, and it is about 50 AD-ish that he shares that. And then, as he's in Corinth, we come to a time where I believe it's very close to the same time of the writing of 1 Thessalonians, just a little bit after, where we have the same three people, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, still together, which means it's a very short time after the writing of 1 Thessalonians, we have him writing another letter. Now, it's apparent that these group of believers were very young in their faith. Again, probably less than a year old in the faith. And as we've seen in chapter 1 so far, and we'll see, these Thessalonians were trusting Jesus, and they were loving one another. And they were enduring much persecution and affliction for following Jesus. And so Paul writes to encourage them, revealing that God hasn't missed a beat. He's going to bring about retribution upon those who are persecuting them, and they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Yet these Thessalonians are on their way to eternal glory. And it's also apparent that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, the second letter of Thessalonians, to protect and strengthen them from the threats, threats to their faith. Indeed, in chapter 2, we see that there was a false message, supposedly by the Apostle Paul, circulating, stating something to the effect that the day of the Lord had come. And these Thessalonians were possibly shaken and disturbed, and Paul didn't want them to be so. Because if the day of the Lord has come, then that means they missed the Lord coming for them. And so the Apostle Paul has to clarify that about when the day of the Lord really will come and that they wouldn't go through it, as we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5, verse 9. But instead, they're going to gain the glory of our Lord, having been chosen from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And that the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father would comfort and strengthen their hearts for every good work and word. And then in chapter 3, after requesting for the Lord's protection of them, he relays that these Thessalonians would continue to obey the Lord's commands. He's confident. Which leads to the last issue that he needs to write in the letter, that there were some who were doing no work at all. And so Paul relays the command for them and how the body is to respond to those who do not obey those commands. So this church is a few months old in Christ, less than a year probably at this point still. And Paul, inspired by the Spirit, launches on some serious truth that they needed to know and we need to know. 
And if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, as you know, we're going to enter into difficulties, temporal difficulties, temporal persecution, temporal situations, because those who are not obedient to Christ hate him, and thus they will hate us. And within those difficulties and seeing the wickedness and evil around us, we can be tempted to be discouraged. And so today I believe we're going to see encouragement, great encouragement for difficult times. And certainly it would encourage you in your persecution, but it would also encourage you as you just walk the walk of faith in Jesus Christ. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 11 to 12, but I want to read up through it. It's been a little while since we had our last message in 2 Thessalonians, so let's read up to our passage from the beginning in chapter 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you towards one another grows even greater. Isn't that wonderful? Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is not only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. And here's our passage. To this end also. See how it's connected. We pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I believe you can already tell this is going to be encouraging as you look at this, as you look at this prayer as Paul reveals his desires for these Thessalonians and thus God's desires for them and for us. And we're going to see it is God's desire that we walk worthily of the calling which we've been called. It's his desire. And he wants to fulfill our desires for all goodness and work powerfully in us by faith. Indeed, Paul prays continually that God would deem these Thessalonians worthy of their calling, fulfilling every desire for goodness and powerfully working through their faith. Look at verse 11. To this end, also, we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. Well, I could stop right there. That's a wonderful verse. Wonderfully encouraging. Because the reality is we fail. If you're a believer, you're going to fall. You're going to sin, and you're going to ask God to forgive you. We fail. But we're sensitive to our failures. We recognize we're sinful. And God says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
And the reality is, if you're a true believer, you are blessed because you hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're not there yet, but we desire it. And God says, you will or shall be satisfied. And so often in our yearning that we would respond rightly and not wrongly, or whatever it might be, our yearning, we can be discouraged. But God wants to encourage us because he wants to fulfill those righteous desires for us to be like his son Jesus. So notice what he says. Here's the main part of our passage. We pray for you always. And then we have the request that our God may count you worthy of your calling, fulfill every desire for goodness in the work of faith of Christ. The quest, and then this is the structure, notice the desired result. In order that, verse 12, the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the structure of this prayer. And he says in the beginning here, to this end also we pray for you always. And you go, to what end? What is he talking about here? You could literally say, to this or to which also. Well, I think it actually points forward to what he's going to say, and it also connects what he has just revealed. Well, what did he just speak of in the beginning of the chapter? Let's review. You might remember the last time we were in Second Thessalonians. We saw that our enduring faith in suffering for Christ, points clearly to the reality of God's righteous judgment upon those who are persecuting us. Look back in verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. They were suffering for Christ. They were suffering. You can look back at the message we did a few months ago and read that and, and listen to it again. They were suffering, but their endurance was a plain indication that they were ultimately the Lord's and that judgment was coming upon those who were persecuting them. And then notice, he also reveals that it's also an evidence that we have been counted worthy of the kingdom. Now we're going to talk about worthy of the kingdom versus worthy of the calling in a minute. Verse 5, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. When you truly suffer for the righteousness of Christ manifest in your life, it is an evidence you are in the kingdom of God. It's an evidence that you're considered worthy to be truly his. And then we saw we need to wait patiently in the midst of suffering. That our ultimate relief from suffering comes when Christ comes and sinners are eternally recompensed. Because, yes, Satan is our enemy, but that opposition comes through people. And so look at, notice what he says. That relief comes, verse 6, for after all it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. Paul was afflicted too. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flame fire. You see, we're going to be taken up. We know from First Thessalonians, we're going to be taken away, and then there's a seven-year tribulation, and Christ is going to come the day of the Lord and deal out retribution on those who do not know God and those who rejected the gospel. And that's when our ultimate relief comes as our persecutors are dealt with righteously. Righteous judgment. Lord shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an unbeliever. 
There's no relationship. They don't know God. There's no relationship. Jesus would say to those who thought they knew him, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. Your sin's in the way. You thought you knew me, but you don't. And those are the same who do not obey the gospel. You see, God declares that all men everywhere should repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man having furnished proof by raising him from the dead. And he calls upon everyone to repent and believe. Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. If you don't do so, then you are guilty and you are on your way to eternal destruction. Because God is so gracious. He sent his son in our place. You reject that, you're on your way to destruction. And he says here, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. It's black darkness, it's eternal fire, it's separation from a good, gracious, kind, merciful God forever. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who believe, for our testimony to you is believed. You believed it, Thessalonians. You didn't think it was the word of man. You believed it as the word of God. So be encouraged. Our suffering's temporal, and God will gloriously, ultimately deliver us from it. Be encouraged. And so we come to our passage. To this end, Also, we pray for you always. To this end also. To what end? Simply Paul is saying, as you're enduring persecution, this reveals you're worthy of the kingdom, you're the real deal, you're the true believer, and in light of your persecutors being eternally punished and you receiving eternal relief, when our Savior comes, to this end, we pray also. Because you're the real deal and you're going to be delivered. So we pray this for you also. Who is the we? Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And if you look throughout First and Second Thessalonians, Paul is a man of prayer, which reveals a loving heart towards those Thessalonians and a dependent heart towards the Lord. People who pray for people, that's what it is. So then he says, to this end also we pray for you always. And what's the request? Notice the first part here. Notice first that our God, our God, hey, you are believers. He's our God. Our God may count you worthy of your calling. The term count you worthy speaks of meeting a standard, a set standard. It carries the idea of deserving or fitting to do something. And we just saw back in verse 5 that these Thessalonians were enduring persecution, and that was an evidence they were worthy of the kingdom of God already. So why would he pray this? That God might count you or may count you worthy of your Calling. It's a slight nuance. He doesn't say the kingdom. He says of your calling. That you might meet the standard of your calling. That you might be deserving of your calling. That you might be fit to do that which you are called. You see, the kingdom is the sphere of the saved, but our calling is something we have been called to, but not have fully obtained. We've been called, as we'll see, unto his glory and unto his holiness, but yet we're not fully there yet. Look up a little farther in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this he called you through our gospel that you might gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news that God has brought a provision for our sinfulness, that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. It's through the gospel that we were called initially unto a relationship with the living God, a saving relationship with the Lord through Christ. Paul says in Galatians 1.6 that we were called by the grace of God. Peter would say in 1 Peter 1.15, like the Holy One who called you were to be holy. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we're called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Hebrews 3.1 and 2 Timothy 1.9, we have a heavenly and holy calling. And it is God who is faithful who called us into fellowship with his Son, Jesus our Lord, 1 Corinthians 1.9. A lot of passages that share so many with you about our calling. God has summoned us into a relationship through the gospel by his grace through what Christ has done on the cross. And yet, within that calling, there is a goal for us to be holy and blameless. Ephesians 1. Turn to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Colossians 1.21, I'll read it for you. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile and in mind engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. Jesus called us out of sin and death to eternal life. And he's called us unto holiness, to righteousness. Practically speaking, to be conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God works all things together for good. For those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Conform to the image of Son, to be like Christ. And because of this great calling unto holiness, Christ's likeness, we're to walk in a manner worthy. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you have been called. With all humility, gentleness, patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. The goal is to walk in a manner worthy of God. Our walk encompasses the sphere of our life. And how is it we're able to walk in a manner worthy? How is it that we sinful beings can walk in a manner worthy? First of all, we need to have been called into a relationship with Jesus. But then, once we have a relationship with Jesus, He, by His Spirit, through His Word, changes us. Back in 1 Thessalonians 2, remember in verses 11 and 12, Paul was exhorting and urging in the Word, comforting with the Word, solemnly testifying with the Word, like a loving father with his own children, so that, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you, into his own kingdom and glory. He uses his word and he works on our hearts 
instructing, correcting, reproving, exposing, teaching that we would walk in a manner worthy of this great calling. You see, we are headed into glory. And it is God through His Word, as we abide in Christ and trust Him, that we are able to walk in a manner worthy of this great calling, this glorious eternal calling. And we see that that is what He does. He does it through faith in Him by His Spirit. He changes us. We see this again in Second Thessalonians. He says that God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You rely and trust in Him. You believe His Word and you obey Him by His power and strength. And He changes us and makes us like Christ. So Paul is saying here, we're praying this. To this end also we pray always for you that our God may deem you worthy of your calling. He's saying that you would actually live up to it in Christ and thus he could say, yes, you're deemed worthy of that calling because Christ is working in you. Now, it's not perfectly. We know we fail. But we know if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We know if we say we have no sin, we're liars. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we should be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, becoming more and more like Him. So he's praying, God, we count you worthy of your calling. now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.